Well, about a month ago, the U.S. Supreme Court reversed their decision on a case called Roe v. Wade, which legalized abortion across the country. And of course, the court's reversal on this decision doesn't end the discussion on abortion. In fact, we expect that in the days ahead, there's going to be a lot more discussion about abortion as the states try to figure out how they want to legalize it or not. But unfortunately, when it comes to this particular topic, it seems to me that many of us derive our understanding of this topic based upon the generation that we're a part of, or maybe the political party that we support, or in some cases, some of us because of a very personal, painful experience with this subject. But as disciples of Jesus Christ, we believe that Jesus is Lord, that we're going to follow what He has to say about all things. And when it comes to this subject, I believe that we as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, need to have a clear understanding about what the Bible teaches about life and about its termination. And so this morning, I want us to consider how the Bible informs our understanding of this issue of abortion. And we're going to do that by turning back to where life begins in Genesis chapter 1. So I hope you'll take with me your Bible and let the Lord speak to us beginning in Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> and as some of you are turning there, all of you hopefully, some of you may not be familiar with how shocking the Roe v. Wade decision was back in 1973. And you may not know all of the details about it. So let me give a quick summary. First of all, this case was a, a case that had to deal with some laws the states were implementing against abortion. And so the Supreme Court was asked to decide, can the states regulate this practice of abortion? And what they said was no, because they did not believe, the court didn't, that an unborn or the unborn is a person. Uh, Justice Blackman, Harry Blackman, wrote the decision, and in the decision he wrote these words. The word person, as used in the 14th Amendment, does not include the unborn. Now, the 14th Amendment is that law that says that the state cannot deprive a person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And the court ruled that an unborn person is not a person. They are not considered a person according to the 14th Amendment, and therefore we could not regulate with regard to its termination in the womb. And so what ends up happening is the court ruled that in the first three months of pregnancy, uh, no state could regulate abortion. It, it, abortion would be available. In the second three months, the states could figure out when abortion would be available or not, but in the last three months of pregnancy, there was to be no abortions throughout the United States. And so this issue of abortion really has to do with the subject of what is the nature of the unborn 
And so today we're going to investigate that question. What is the nature of the unborn? And we're going to do it not by looking at judicial precedents, but by looking at biblical teaching. And we're going to look at what is an unborn, what, what is the state of the unborn, and is the unborn a person? And to begin our investigation, let's go back to Genesis chapter 1, where we see life beginning. Human life begins in Genesis chapter 1, the record of it, in verse 26. Genesis 1 and in verse 26. It says, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Here we are seeing, we see that humans have a unique place among God's creation, that both male and female are made in the image of God. That idea of being made in His image is, goes back to an ancient concept that the ancient cultures would have with regard to a king displaying his authority over his realm. The way he would do it is he would build some statues of himself. He would place them various places around his realm as a representation of his authority. In like manner, what God has done is He wants all of creation to recognize His sovereignty. And He does it not by just creating mountains and stars and moons that demonstrate His power, but He has put within His realm little images of Himself. Not statues, but men and women who are made in the likeness of God. And that's why the text says that men and women were given dominion over God's creation. Our ruling, our dominion over God's creation is simply a reflection of God's ultimate dominion over all creation. We are to reflect God's sovereign right over all things. And so humans have a unique place in this world because we're made in the image of God and therefore we have this ultimate value. And it doesn't have anything to do with the color of our skin or our abilities or our intellect or our skills or our social position or our money. It is simply because human beings are made in the image of God, we reflect His ultimate authority, and that's what gives us value. And that's why the Bible considers the taking of human life to be the highest tragedy. For example, after the flood, God gave Noah this principle about human life. He said, As for your lifeblood... I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has made mankind. Now earlier in the chapter, God told Noah that you can 
kill and eat the animals. But here he gives the highest possible penalty against killing another human being. And the reason for that is because in killing that other human being, you are killing the image of God. You are denying God's right to rule his creation. And that's what makes murder so terrible. That's why it is codified in the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. And I would suggest to you this understanding of human life, that it comes from God, and it has ultimate significance because human life is made in the image of God is what allows Christians to have the best foundation for the appreciation of life throughout its existence. From the time of its conception to the time of its death, we believe that human life is significant because it reflects the image of God. That we are made in God's, with God's moral consciousness. We are made eternal beings capable of eternal fellowship with God. And therefore, every human being is highly significant. And to kill a human being is to deny God's right to rule His world. Remember back during the Gulf War when they came into Baghdad and the people took the image, the statue of Saddam Hussein and they pulled it down and they knocked its head off. And we knew what they were saying by that. We were saying, they were saying, this man no longer rules here. And what God is saying is that I have given life to humanity and to take the life of a human is to deny my right to give life and to rule my creation. And so the Bible teaches the, a great value that God has given to human life. Now, though, here's the question. Is that human life a baby in the womb? What is an unborn child? Is it a human? Is it a person? Well, thankfully, the Bible has a lot to say about this. First, God's Word continually talks about God having a personal act in creating human life. Throughout the book of Genesis, we see that God enables conception and God restricts conception because He's in control of human life. We see an example of this from the time of the judges where it tells us about Ruth and Boaz. It says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave conception, and she bore a son. Here, conception is not just spoken of as just a physical reality, but something that God is involved in and providing the life. God's ability to give life and personhood even to the baby in the womb, is seen many times in the book of Job. In Job chapter 10 and in verse 8, Job says, Your hands fashioned me and made me. You clothed me with skin and flesh. You knitted me together with bones and sinew. You have granted me life. Here's Job's understanding of when personhood begins. It is God in the womb knitting together a baby and giving it life. He continues in 
Job 31 and verse 15. Did not he who made me in the womb make them? And did not the same one form both of us within our mothers? Here he expands it out. Not only did God make me in my mother's womb and give me life in my mother's womb, but he's done that to you as also. And so this should affect the way that we treat one another, knowing that God was involved in giving us life. Job 33 and verse 4, The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. So Job believed that God is intimately involved in giving life to an unborn baby. But I think most beautifully, it is David that described this reality in Psalm 139. This is what, it really the whole psalm is a great exposition of God giving life. But here, particularly, God giving life in the womb. Verse 13, David writes, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows them very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. David understood that the baby in the womb was made by God. That the embryonic growth that takes place in the womb is what is God's work. He says, you knitted me together in my mother's room. That right from the very beginning, God gave the, this child personhood. He said, you knew me from my unformed substance onward. I mean, before I had the little fingers and the toes, before I had the little nose, and I was that unformed substance, you knew me, he said. You see, David, by inspiration, believed that the unborn child is a human person from the unformed substance onward. I think John Stott summarized it well when he wrote this. <clears throat> the fetus is neither a growth in the mother's body, nor even a potential human being, but already a human life, though not yet mature, has the potential of growing into the fullness of the individual humanity he already possesses. Has the potential of growing into the fullness of the individual humanity he already possesses. Well, hundreds of years later, we find, for example, the prophet Jeremiah saying the same thing. <clears throat> As he describes the record of God choosing him to be a prophet, God says it in his own words in Jeremiah 1 and verse 4. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you and appointed you a prophet to the nations. So God knew Jeremiah as Jeremiah as he formed him in the womb and appointed him to the work that he had called him to do. 
In the New Testament, though, I think there's a fascinating example of this seen in the incarnation of Jesus. Just think of that concept, by the way, the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus coming to take flesh. And the Bible teaches that when Jesus was, he, the way that he took flesh was not by just being born as a 30-year-old man. I think I would have liked that approach. But the way that Jesus took on flesh was by becoming a baby in the womb. In that, we already see personhood. We already see life given in the womb. But there's also a fascinating example of this with regard to Jesus' cousin. His name was John the Baptizer. And John the Baptizer, his mother and father were Elizabeth and Zechariah, and they were old and they were not able to have a baby. Until, the text says, God allowed her to conceive. So right from conception, God is giving life within Elizabeth. And not only gives, it, gives this baby life, but names it. He's going to be called John. So here is a baby in the womb that has life from God and who is named by God. I would call that personhood. But as that little baby is in Elizabeth, he is about six months in his mother's womb when Jesus' mother Mary comes for a visit. And when Mary comes for a visit, the little baby, John the Baptizer, jumps in his mother's womb, and this is what Elizabeth says. The baby, the baby in my womb, leapt for joy. So now it doesn't only have life and personhood, it has emotions as well. Isn't that interesting? And, she, and then Elizabeth says to Mary, she welcomes her as, quote, the mother of my Lord, she doesn't say, you are the potential mother of my potential Lord. He says, she said, you are the mother of my Lord. And at this point, Jesus is clearly within those first three months of life. And she recognizes that already makes Mary a mother. And that already makes the baby the Lord. And in fact, in this whole text of Luke chapter 1 and 2... The words that are used to describe a child in the womb, baby or child, are the same words that are used to describe the baby out of the womb, baby or child. It's the same word that's used to describe the little children that were brought to Jesus for him to bless. In other words, what I'm saying is that for the biblical writers, they didn't see a difference between human life and personhood in the womb or out of the womb. They saw it as the expression of the same life. As one writer put it, the Bible uses the expression, quote, with child 26 times to describe a pregnant woman. And the fetus is never, it, the term fetus is never used. It's one of the things we've done with babies in the womb. If we've given them all kinds of names that dehumanize them, to begin to treat them differently. But one of the, let me click through this, one of the things we see specifically with regard to the life of an unborn child is found in the law. 
in Exodus 21. It's one of the very first case laws ever given to Israel. And in this case law, it, it uh, conceives of this situation where two men would be fighting. And in the midst of their fighting, a pregnant woman is hit. And as a result, the pregnant woman goes into labor prematurely. And the law says that if that woman gives birth to a child and it is okay, it lives, then the men shall be fined for doing that foolishness in the first place. But if this premature birth causes the death of the child, then we're right back to Genesis chapter 9. That when you take a human life, you are going to pay the highest penalty for that. You will die as well. And so there's some indication even in the law that the unborn child was seen as a person, a person made in the image of God, and therefore to kill that child is to be a murderer. Now, I believe that most people understand that a baby in the womb is a human being. Um, these scriptures clearly, I think, teach it from the Bible's point of view. But what I did this week is I just perused some of the Instagram accounts of various celebrities who are pregnant. And these celebrities, I mean, when it comes to abortion, they're typically not against it. And yet when they announced the birth of their children, I was surprised at how many of them called the child my baby. They named the child. They talked about the new life that was within them. Uh, the man would, would bend down and kiss the belly of the woman. And they would show their sonograms. Why all of that? Well, because they believe there's a life in there. They believe it's a human life. They believe that it's the person that they have had a part in creating. In addition, I think a lot of the imaging and, uh, and science has really just progressed to such a point that it's hard for anybody not to look at all of that evidence and say, well, it's, it's alive, and if it's not a human life, what is it? And so if it is a human life, then what are we to do with it? I think most people realize that a human life a baby in the womb is a human life with personhood. But the Bible record purely says that it is God who gives us life. And our right to life comes from Him. And an unborn baby is a person who was given life by God, who is made in the image of God. And therefore, abortion violates the right to life that every human being has that comes from God. But let's return to Genesis chapter 1, because I think there's something else here in Genesis 1 that relates to this issue of abortion. In Genesis chapter 1, let's keep reading now in verse 28. We saw in 27 that God made us male and female, and He made us in His image. So, verse 28, what is this male and female supposed to do? He blessed them, and He said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
And so here God is, is says God made humans with a certain physiology. And this physiology is intended to be used for, in Genesis 1 and 2, for two reasons. God made us male and female for two reasons. First of all, for the process of procreation. And that makes sense. That's how he's created all these other kind of animals. But he has also created human beings yet for, I'm sorry, I'm behind on my clicks a little bit, for another purpose, he has made us male and female. And that's found in chapter 2 and verse 24. When he says, Adam, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So God has created men and women capable with their physiology of having a sexual relationship with one another. And this sexual relationship is for two purposes. One is to draw together the man and woman in unity, in fellowship, in a committed relationship with one another, where they leave father and mother and they join to one another for the purpose of a mutual, loving, committed relationship. And it is within that relationship that God has provided this procreation to take place. In other words, God designed the sexual relationship between a man and a woman to be limited to marriage. And when it's limited to marriage, the children who come into that relationship then are the kind of environment God originally planned for those children to come. Now, the reason I'm making this point is I want us to see what's happened in our society. Our society has redefined some significant things. It has redefined by evolution the source of life. That all things don't come from God. They just came into being. And because of this redefinition of where life comes from, I'm no different than the animals, no different from anything else. If we can rise and kill and eat that, we can arise and kill and eat other things. There's been a radical redefinition about where life comes from. And if it doesn't come from God, it has not the significance that the Bible teaches. Secondly, there has been a redefinition about sexuality. In this country, it started with the sexual revolution, where what we did is we defined sex as not being something that draws a husband and wife together in a mutually committed relationship in which children are born in an environment in which God intended. Instead, sex becomes something that is for my own personal pleasure. It is for my own personal uh, power. I use it for me. And as a result, when I want a different sexual partner, I just move on to a different sexual partner. Now, in a world in which there is the idea that life doesn't come from God and that we're not made in the image of God, and that sex is to be used for our own selfish pleasure and power, it's inevitable that something like abortion would come up to take care of the consequences of things that we don't want to accept. And if we are going to 
value human life the way that God wants us to, it is time for God's people to begin to value marriage in the way that God intends for us to. To be mutually committed to one another. To be filled with grace and mercy towards one another. And then full faithfulness and commitment to one another. The world needs to see the value that God has placed upon marriage. And God has, the world needs to see that it is the realm in which God has chosen to bring children in. Now that's not always the case. And when it isn't, we make the very best of it as we can. But Genesis chapter 1, I think, gets to one of the major problems we have with regard to abortion today. For example, I was uh, on the National Institute of Health's website, and they have there a survey of the reasons why women seek abortions in the United States. And these are the main reasons why abortions are sought. First, financial reasons. Secondly, timing. Third, partner-related reasons. And then fourth, the need to focus on other children. So in other words, this is the major, these are the major reasons why people seek abortions today. I don't have enough money right now. It's not a good time for me. There's a problem I'm having with my partner and I just have other kids I need to focus on. Basically, what it comes down to is having this child would be a huge inconvenience in my life. And so I need to abort it instead of embracing the inconvenience that it brings. And yet I hope that there still resides in most people some residue of natural affection within us. Let me see if I can just ask this as a question. Um, How many parents do you think would be willing to give up their life for their children? I think most of us would. In fact, wouldn't we think it evil if a parent grabbed a child and said, kill it instead of me? We understand that. But when it comes to abortion what happens is that this life has become inconvenient and I'd rather it be removed rather than I have to embrace the inconvenience of it coming. Abortion violently disrupts God's intended purpose for the sexual relationship. God intended the sexual relationship to make husbands and wives. He intended the sexual relationship to bring husbands and wives in mutual commitment to one another. He intended the sexual relationship to elevate the the role of marriage in procreation and in a society that treats the sexual relationship so common, the abortion becomes so common itself. And so for those of us who are married, it's time to recommit ourselves to our marriages. And may I say to those of us who are not married, Please do not believe the lies that you're not a whole person because you're not having sex. 
It's this one-dimensional falsehood that our world is selling us. Let me say to you that you are immensely valuable. You are made in the image of God, capable of full and joyful life, just like Jesus was, and he wasn't married. We need to quit buying this lie that life is all about having sex. It leads to the kind of culture that we are facing. You know, few issues are more painful than abortion. It's painful because it has to do with ending life. But it's also painful because for many of us, it's very personal. But may I say to us that that pain is intended to drive us to the Lord and to find that in the Lord, He is the giver of life. And as the Savior of life, He is full of grace and He is able to forgive all sin. He has redeeming grace, and there is no act, can I say it, there is no act outside of His grace to those who repent. Yes, Roe v. Wade has been reversed, and in this we rejoice. We rejoice that life hopefully has a chance to be valued more, uh, that there may be babies that are born that will give glory to God and be saved in eternity. Do the work of the Lord in this world. But we also must understand that this gives us a responsibility. If we are people who believe that the baby in the womb is a human life made in the image of God, then we need to treat it with the honor that it respects. We need to elevate marriage. We need to disregard this false teaching about sex. But then we need to have an extreme compassion for those who find themselves with child that they didn't expect or maybe didn't even want. And many times the women in those situations that end up getting the, divorce, getting the abortion are actually themselves the, the objects of abuse and exploitation of the men that are around their lives. And this does not lay at the feet of just women, but men and women and all of the supporting characters around them to support life when it comes into being. And perhaps in the days ahead, we need to be more aware of those who may be pregnant and support them and encourage them to support pregnancy centers to be a part of things like sacred selections that help the adoption of children that are born to mothers that didn't expect it or didn't want it. It's one thing to say we're against abortion. It's another thing to say we are for life. We need to tell the world that the gift of God is life. And it begins in the womb. It's made in His image. And we need to help people see the value of the, of the soul, that it's precious to God, and the destiny of the soul. Mother, father, and little baby is the most important thing in the world. You know, I can't think of a thing that's more opposite of abortion than, than the cross. Can you? Think about what happened in the cross. The cross, the giver of life, gave up his life so we could become his children. And what happens in abortion is the ones who have the power to give life 
takes life so that there is no children. And what we have in the cross is the world's greatest illustration of love. And may we replicate it. If you need to respond to the gospel, know that he is full of grace and he wants you to be his child. Hey, he's given his life so you can be. If you need to respond to the gospel, please do put on Jesus Christ in baptism as we stand and sing.